Welcome to Rainbow Colored Glasses, a podcast that looks at LGBTQ media of the past and asks what it means today. I'm Paul, my guest is Derek, and we are discussing Todd Haynes' 1998 film Velvet Goldmine. There will be spoilers. Jonathan Rees Myers plays Brian Slade, a successful glam rocker. He fakes his death and vanishes in 1974. Christian Bale plays Arthur, a reporter who investigates the disappearance in 1984. He'll interview Brian's former manager, his ex-wife, and his ex-boyfriend, played by Ewan McGregor. The screenplay pays homage to Citizen Kane, Oscar Wilde, Ziggy Stardust, Lou Reed, and many more glam rockers. It's a lot to unpack, and I'm glad I have Derek with me to help. Derek, what's your history with this film? Hey, Paul. My first memory of this film is uh, quite vivid, actually, because it's kind of one of my formative, like, queer touchstones. Uh, I was in a blockbuster video. I remember those. (laughs) And um, my cousin had just had a baby. And so several of the family were kind of, like, all staying in one place. So we went to the video store to, to rent a couple of movies. And this was my pick, just based on the cover. Like, I had a feeling uh, the cover was... um, Ewan McGregor and Christian Bale in full. Oh, actually, not Christian Bale. Ewan McGregor and uh, and Jonathan Rhys Meyers in like full glam rock makeup and wiggery and uh, an electric guitar and like bright, vibrant colors and sort of concert lighting. And I was just like, oh, what the hell is this? Uh, and so uh, I rented it. Um, God, I was uh, like 12 or 13 at the time. And so uh, a lot of it went over my head. <laughs> but what I think Todd Haynes in general, like entire filmography does for me really well in this film specifically, is it kind of helped me start to articulate things about myself that I didn't necessarily have a vocabulary for yet. Uh, so very um, in love with this film from the beginning. And as I've gotten older and gone back to rewatch it, including my rewatch for this, just find more and more every time. Well, that's a good segue into Christian Bale's character, Arthur, because when he sees Brian Slade on the TV, he imagines pointing and shouting at his parents, that's me, that's me. I would say if if the film had sort of an, a uh, thesis isn't the right word. Yeah, sure, a thesis. It, it, it's that moment in the film. It's that pointing at the TV, seeing someone on screen and saying, that's me. That's me. Uh, For me, that is very much what Velvet Goldmine is about. Now, Arthur's the audience point of view character and sort of dual protagonist. I I debate because between him and Jonathan Rhys Myers, I couldn't say which has more screen time. But uh, what would you say Arthur's journey is throughout the film? I think it's that of a devout fan, I, I love that you mentioned uh, sort of the dual um, protagonist, you know, like early in the the making of the film, I think Todd Haynes like directly asked David Bowie if he could have a blessing and permission for the entire Bowie catalog for this film. And David Bowie said, no, thank you. Uh, but I, I think because of that, like that really opened up the possibilities for this movie, because rather than being like a Bowie autobiography and being glued to a Bowie timeline and Bowie facts, it really just kind of becomes about the scene itself and with arthur we kind of get to be those outside eyes you know what it was to be a glam rock fan to sort of see the um the history of that scene the rise of it the eventual fall of it 
and it's specifically because we're kind of looking back uh, structurally the film is kind of jumps all over the place I, uh, I would say it's you know experimental in a good way uh, but you know we're looking back from this sort of uh, dreary post glam everything's washed out and gray feels very just sort of stodgy as as they say on Great British Bake Off it's a very stodgy looking present that we're looking back um, from. And uh, it's kind of about Arthur's journey as as a fan of glam rock, but also someone who idolizes these glam rockers and then gets to meet those idols. And it sort of like leans into that trope a little bit about, you know, meeting your heroes and how disappointing that can be. And Haynes doesn't tell us who Arthur is in the 80s. We see in the 70s, he, just like the rock stars, uses that music and that fashion to express himself and escape from his conservative home. And he joins a band, he starts wearing makeup, and eventually uh, sleeps with a man, and that sort of completes his self-acceptance journey in the 70s. But then in the 80s, he's, he's all buttoned up, and I'm not sure whether this investigation is helping him get back in touch with his old self or not. He doesn't really get a, a capstone on that journey. Oh, I, I, I would say it, it, it certainly is. I mean, it, with, through the framing device of him looking back and doing all of these interviews, it's almost kind of, um, you know, a, a re, rekindling that fire. It's kind of like getting in touch with his former self, his queerer self, his happier self, perhaps his more fully realized self. So yeah, I think I think the film does a really nice job at drawing that parallel as he goes back in a strange sort of way. He's able to move forward. Okay, okay, that's definitely a journey I want to see. That I feel like the film doesn't quite have time to flesh out because then, of course, we've got Slade's journey, and there's sort of this idea of is Slade an artist or is he a magpie? Is he creating art? Or is he just imitating all of these other artists that he meets along his journey? And because we're only seeing him through the eyes of people that he's hurt, we don't have a reliable perspective on this. What would you say is Slade's career path? Yeah, I think you kind of nailed it. It's it's the artist's eternal struggle for self-expression and authenticity. In fact, I think it's one of the things that multiple rewatches sort of brings out even more uh, for me as a queer person as a as a queer viewer in 2023 is how much of this movie focuses on authenticity you know and and a lot of that is i think um part of the music scene any or any sort of um non-mainstream music movement it feels like there's a um uh, a fear of imposter syndrome and uh, accusation of posing or not being authentic enough. And for Slade, it feels like he's both ahead of his time and then also sort of behind the times. Uh, it's it's a terrible thing that we do to musical artists. We We love them for who they are and really resist when they try to change. You know, it's it's like we find that one album that we absolutely love and they try something different on the next album. We're like, oh, you're posing or you're faking it or, oh, it's just more of the same. It, it, it's almost kind of like a lose-lose, which is why any musical artist with longevity in the industry is really, it's, it's quite a feat, I, I think. But yeah, for Slade, it feels like, uh, you know, he, he sees himself sort of at the forefront of, a musical movement, but also sort of a, a moment of liberation for uh, for queerness and for, for gender. 
um, for fashion, um, for culture. And then by the end of the film, in many ways, it sort of left him behind a little bit, you know, and some of that's his own making, you know, a lot of, a lot of heroes tend to create their own downfalls, but, but yeah, he goes from being on top of the world to kind of at the bottom of it. Well, I've heard two reads on that because we meet two other rockers. We briefly meet Jack Ferry, who is an old school rocker that Brian steals a symbolic brooch from Oscar Wilde's brooch. Uh, but then we also spend a lot of time with Hugh McGregor's character, Kurt Wilde, and Kurt's all about authenticity and being his true self on stage, but he's very self-destructive and his career stalls, whereas because Brian does keep evolving and changing with the times, he he gets to continue holding on to stardom. So at the end of the day, which one's right and at first i thought very much that haynes was being critical of slade saying that kurt was doing it the right way and slade was doing it the wrong way but i've heard other interpretations and i think it it leaves you on a note of ambiguity yeah i I would agree with that you know slade the the you mentioned the jumping off point of the film where he has well, we think he is being assassinated at a concert and it turns out it's a publicity stunt and he's faking his death. You know, it almost reminds me of an artist, uh, to use a contemporary comparison, someone like Lady Gaga, where public stunt, oh, I'm on board, public stunt number two, oh, I'm on board. And then eventually people start saying, oh, this is too much or like it crossed a line, you know, and it's it's different for every artist, but it, it feels like... Uh, yeah, both both Brian Slade and Kurt Wilde are striving for some sort of authenticity. One is just Kurt's is a little raw, you know. He's um sort of modeled after Iggy Pop, but he also he reminds me a lot of Kurt Cobain. The, this last time that I watched it, and I know this, the timeline for the film completely precedes both grunge and Kurt Cobain, but just something about that um sort of like primal, you know, animal on stage just being one with their audience kind of reminded me of that. Whereas for Slade, it's all about um, creating this artifice, you know, and it's just like, uh, you know, assassinating himself, oddly enough, did exactly that because the <laughs> jumping off point of the film, you know, is this the first of many really cool sort of uh, music news montages with uh, both news footage and um, like screen grabs of print magazines and newspapers as well about his record sales uh and his concerts getting canceled basically his downfall like he uh foe assassinates himself to uh really assassinate his career well there is an unauthorized uh david bowie biopic called stardust and it's dreadful but the the thrust of it is that david was afraid to perform on stage and he had to create this ziggy stardust persona to play in order to work up the courage to face an audience i don't know how much uh veracity there is to that but i do know that later he spoke about how he eventually had to symbolically kill off ziggy so that he could become new personas and make new types of music uh certainly nothing as violent as what brian slade does in the film but uh i can imagine an audience that loved ziggy stardust having great resistance to that yeah i, I especially because it um you know, like the the Ziggy Bowie relationship, it's it's uh, it's an ex- Ziggy is like an extension of David Bowie, but also sort of a f- fantastic 
fantastical exaggeration, you know, and that's especially uh, in a concert setting and in a pop culture setting where we can't necessarily get close to the human being able to be close to the deity almost, you know, like, like especially um, shout out to the phenomenal Cindy Powell costumes in this movie, but like the, the, the opening scene that we have for Brian Slade, it's this beautiful, almost angelic, like gathering of feathers. Like he really does seem to sort of descend from heaven for this opening moment. I feel like the costumes really make Jonathan Reese Meyer's performance. I've heard some critics just praise how magnetic he is, but I find him very flat here. I find his musical performances quite underwhelming. If he wasn't wearing those glamorous outfits, he wouldn't make much of an impression on me. And I'm not sure if that's supposed to be the point or not. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You know, we always want to justify that. Like, like, like if, we, <laughs> if we resist a performance, we're like, well, maybe that's the point. Maybe I wasn't supposed to like it. I do, <laughs> I do think it, Haynes is having it consciously contrast what Ewan McGregor is doing as Kurt Wilde, because that is so visceral. So, you know, there, uh, there's sort of a cool detachment to what Brian Slade is. And, I, and I've seen too, you know, in kind of reading up on some of the, um, critical assessment of the movie, Todd Haynes has said in interviews that it's also about the relationship between Britain and the US, you know, this sort of like give give and take back and forth between like, um, you know, the Beatles influenced this person over here who then informed the new wave movement in Europe, just this sort of like back and forth giving of energy. And I do think these two performances do kind of nicely personify that sort of too cool for school Brit pop Brit punk feel versus like something like raw underground New York City grungy sort of feel you know it's a, it's a nice sort of yin and yang between the two now this season on Saturday Night Live Timothy Chalamet hosted an episode where Bowen Yang had him impersonate the pop singer Troy Sivan I'm a big fan of Troy but Bowen points out that, and he was true, a lot of the audience doesn't know who Troy is because Troy is gay famous. Whereas, and then another person I think of is Harry Styles, because Harry uh, is called out for supposedly imitating David Bowie in his fashion, not so much in his music, but in his in his presentation, whereas at the same time, he has never come out explicitly as a queer man. And so some people say, oh, well, he's just appropriating. Ewan McGregor actually has a little speech about appropriation in Velvet Goldmine. Um, what are some... What are some modern parallels? How do how has the perception of queer celebrities changed today? So I'd like to think that it's a lot easier to be a queer celebrity today. Uh, I don't know for sure because I'm not one, <laughs> but perhaps one day. Uh, I think sort of the biggest challenge we face today is something we've talked about the film hitting on a little, which is that idea of authenticity, you know? So you've got the cries of queer baiting on one side, and then the opposite of that, I guess, would be like, like, like straight washing, you know, there's sort of this, this huge spectrum of, of gender and sexuality. And it does feel like we oftentimes pressure artists to, if not label themselves, um, just express themselves in as concisely a way as possible. Whereas it seems what what's happening in Velvet Goldmine and like during 
the, the, the sort of glam rock period is they were able to just pile on so many different identities, you know, and maybe they were hiding something true underneath it. Maybe it was artifice. Maybe it was all for publicity, but, but what's really kind of cool to see over the arc of the film is how it gets put on and then how it gets taken off. And I, and I think maybe that's what, um, you were hitting at a little bit with sort of the effect that this scene and this world has on, um, on Arthur as he's looking back as, you know, in, in, in a strange sort of way, way, like the party ended and he wasn't left with instructions on how to, how to continue, you know, like what he sort of saw as these big, beautiful gods and goddesses, they take off the wigs, they take off the makeup and they go home. And it's like, wait, was none of this real? Was it all fake? Um, yeah. <laughs> I think we're meant to judge Slade harshly for his 80s conservative look, although today it doesn't look that conservative to me, but I, uh, but it's a recreation of a look that Bowie had at that point in his career. Um, but it's still, and it's still, it still feels pretty glamorous with the big hair and the <laughs> jacket. Well, again, you know, it's, it, it's allowing artists to evolve, engage with the world, in an ongoing authentic way and, and to change with it, you know, like, I, like I would love to see more contemporary artists embrace their, their inward and outward Harry styles, which, you know, to, to, you know, I, I have no idea how, how Harry identifies when it's just he, him and himself, but, but just like the sort of public perception of blurring any binary, I think, can be useful to the queer community. You know, like see, seeing Harry Styles dressed in an amazing, like Mick Jagger, Houston suit and pants one day, and then, you know, a, a, a lace skirt and something a lot more femme presenting the next day, like doesn't hurt anyone, I don't think. If you were recommending this film today, do you think people would appreciate it more knowing the history? Or does this film work as a primer for the glam rock movement? I think it could be both. Yeah, I, I hate when, uh, you know, a piece of art comes with like an in instruction manual. You know, uh, like I love the idea that people could just find this film and it'd be a nice, a nice gateway into the glam rock scene, especially because, you know, Haynes didn't get permission from Bowie, so these characters become more composites than really aiming for historical accuracy. But what I think it really captures is the energy of the scene. It's that feeling of being a fan. It's that feeling of getting dressed up, going to the concert, listening to the music. And so if someone watches the film and gets on board with the, that vibe, it's a very vibes-forward movie, uh, then I think it could start them down a rabbit hole to like kind of discover the history behind it. I think it could certainly, there, there are enough sort of um, Easter eggs scattered throughout the film, you, you know, that as, as I've gotten older and gone back and um, become more immersed in like sixties and seventies and eighties music, even this last watch, I was like, Oh, that's obviously a nod to this singer, that sort of thing. You know, it only enriches the experience, but uh, by all means, I don't think it is a, uh, necessity to enjoy it i don't love this film i it's a film i respect more than i enjoy i i would definitely recommend it to people who love the music love the scene but i'm learning i like getting inside a character's head and following them on a journey and because haynes is looking at a bigger picture theme he doesn't really let us get to know who brian is or who 
Arthur is, or even who Kurt is, although Kurt's more open than the rest of them. But yeah. I saw Todd Haynes' new film, May, December, in theaters this month, and it just reminded me what, what stirring images Haynes can create and how much he's willing to tackle very, very uncomfortable themes and sort of pursue them to their bitter end. Yeah, I think if you are a Todd Haynes fan, which you should be, I hope you are, uh, it's it's definitely worth watching because I, I, I think of him um, really as, as one of our, our greatest directors right now, specifically a queer artist who often tackles queer stories in an unexpected way. You know, it's rarely a straightforward point of view. There's always some kind of slightly askew angle and uh, depending on w- which film we're talking about. But I usually think of um, restraint when it comes to his work. You know, I think about, I think about Carol, I think about safe, I think about these quieter movies. And so this movie to me, Velvet Goldmine is really him just seeing what it's like to go at maximum volume. It's, it's, it's loud, it's obnoxious, it's, it's big. It's, it's a lot more vibrant and, and, and neon than a lot of his other stuff. And so, yeah, it's a big swing that I think is, is well worth watching. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today and getting me to revisit this film. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Paul. This was a blast. Thank you for listening to Rainbow Colored Glasses. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. The music you're listening to is Squares, licensed under Creative Commons. If you like us, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We'll see you next time.